I'm excited for today. I'm excited for next week. It's going to be our deacon ordination service. As Mark said, that is a such an awesome next step for us in, in our church plant. For those of you who are visiting, we are still very young in our church, um, two years old and counting. And, and what I see in Scripture is the very necessity of, of establishing leadership and then moving on to a formal church membership. And so that's what we're doing. I've been very intentional as far as trying to lay foundational stones for Waypoint. Um, and consequently, um, some of the, the topics and, and teachings that we've been covering take on the, the flavor of more instruction in, um, as opposed to preaching. But that's intentional. I, I don't want to assume as a pastor that we're all on the same page. And so I'm trying to be very broad and intentional as far as what we lay as foundations because uh, we won't get to lay foundations again and uh, unless we go plant another church, which I'm not going to leave Waypoint and plant Waypoint number two across the street. First Waypoint and second Waypoint, as we were kind of joking earlier. <laughs> um, today we're going to start a two-part series, a two-sermon series on church membership. Um, we're going to talk on it today. Next week's our ordination service. The following week, we're going to do the second part of this. And I don't know about you, but the way my mind thinks, I, I like puzzles. Does anybody else like puzzles? You can, you can pour your puzzle pieces out, but if you don't look at the picture first, you'll have no idea how to begin to arrange them. So often, doctrine and theology seems like all these pieces just kind of mixed together. And so I'm, the way my mind tries to do theology, especially when I instruct, is what's the big picture? Because then the pieces will start seeing where they fit. Okay. So today is the big picture of, of church membership. And really, we're not even going to discuss church membership per se. That will be the second part of this where we zero in on the pieces. This morning, I want to talk more about what is the church? The nature of the church, because until we really understand what that is, we'll never have a conviction about church membership and why it's something that we're going to do. I've been in ministry for 16 years now, which seems like a long time, but I was just telling someone the other day, it feels like I'm just getting started. I, I feel like I'm a babe in ministry. And, um, but, but I have noticed in 16 years of ministry, there's been church changes even in that short amount of time. If you were to look back in history just over the last 50 years, how much has changed both culturally as well as ecclesiastically, it's been tremendous. Um, at one point in American history, at least, the church had a prominent and respected place within the, the culture. Over the last 50 years, the church has, without a doubt, fallen from grace and has become the punching bag of the culture. And even more recently, it's become the punching bag of professing Christians. And that alarms me. I've seen that in my short tenure in pastorates. Um, you expect that from the culture, right? Um, a church that stands in truth and righteousness and holiness is always going to be at odds with a culture that doesn't. Um, unless the Lord is drawing people out of the culture, the church is really an offensive thing. Um, Christ was very offensive to the self-righteous Pharisees. They were repulsed by Him and wanted nothing to do with Him. They wanted to kill Him. So we expect that from the culture. But it's alarming when the church becomes um, disgraced, repudiated, rejected by those who profess to bear the church's uh, name and the Lord's name. I don't know if you follow the news, but it's been alarming to me. Even in recent months, the spat of Christian leaders who've come out um, disavowing their faith. If you if you know who Joshua Harris was, I read Joshua Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He kind of started that whole purity movement. Um, he's wrote several other books. Um, one was called Stop Dating the Church. I totally agree with that. I was going to quote him until um, until he said, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> And, and then began identifying with um, the LGBTQ community. Following him, coming out, repudiating the faith. And, and mind you, Joshua Harris actually comes out of a theological tradition I would be very much aligned with. 
Um, his mentor and pastor, C.J. Mahaney, spoke at MacArthur's conferences. Um, I like him. So he, it's not like he came out of just an errant theological tradition. Um, after him following, following a couple weeks later, I guess, uh, one of Hillsong's worship pastors, Marty Simpson, came out saying, I'm no longer a Christian either. And, and they throw all these accusations against the church. Some of it sticks and some of it justly so. Um, but I'm also encouraged when I see all these things happening, I'm encouraged that, that what's beginning to happen in our culture is that, that those in the church are beginning to think long and hard about the seriousness of the church. And, and I see a line beginning to be drawn. Um, if you guys know who John Cooper is, he's the lead singer for Skillet. Here's what he said in response to all these Christian leaders coming out. I love this. He said, it's time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the Word and to value the teaching of the Word. We need to value the truth over feeling, truth over emotion. And what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. He was very bold in his repudiation of what he sees going on. It's become fashionable, especially in the culture's eyes, for Christian leaders to knock the bride of Christ. My whole goal with these next two sermons is to put before us as a church, we best be careful not to repudiate the bride of Christ because God loves His bride. And the church, historically and theologically and eschatologically, has an extremely prominent place in the plan and purposes of God. And we are to value the body of Christ. I want to put a very high ideal of what the church is before us. I think until we value the church as we see it in Scripture, we'll never come to a place of conviction that we need to join and serve it. So, that's what I want to do this morning. I want to move us, uh, I don't know that this is our attitude, but if it is, I want to move us from the mindset of casually dating the church to moving to an intimate relationship marriage with the church. John MacArthur said, I really liked how he said it, he said, in a day when commitment is a rare commodity, it should come as no surprise that church membership is such a low priority to so many believers. Sadly, it is not uncommon for Christians to move from church to church, never submitting themselves to the care of elders and never committing themselves to a group of fellow believers. Next time we, we talk on this, not next week, but week after, I'm going to ask very specific questions. There's a time when you come to a new community. We have a very transient community, especially because of our military folk. And they have to go through a process sometimes of shopping for churches, for lack of a better phrase. And, and in, in a sense, there's a time you need to do that. You want to test a church out to find out who they are. You want to make sure that you're going to stand with them theologically and biblically. But there also comes a time where you're, you're never going to find a church that you agree with 100%. And you've got to see, hey, can I fit in there? Am I gifted in a way that can help them? And commit yourself. And so that will be the second sermon. Today I want to look at what is the nature of the church? Um, one, what the scripture identifies for us the church itself is. Um, the nature in the sense of its universal nature. And third, its local manifestation. Okay, And that will put us in a position to be able to really deal with the question, what about church membership? Uh, because in case you didn't know, the Bible actually never formally says or outlines something of a church membership for us. So why are we going to do it? We'll answer that next time. All right. So as we have with several uh, the past several weeks, we're going to do a survey, a more of a systematic approach to dealing with this topic, okay? This is from our statement of faith. And by the way, what our plan is, is I'm going to teach these two weeks on church membership, and then we're going to have a class 
for anyone who is interested and thinks that Waypoint is going to be the church they want to commit to. Um, and, and in that class, what we're going to do is really teach our statement of faith. And then we're going to have a follow-up where you're going to be able to ask questions and interact with it. This is directly from our statement of faith. What is, the, what is the Bible and what do we believe as Waypoint Christian Church, the body of Christ, is? Quote, we believe that when a man, woman, boy, or girl receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they are born again into another family beyond their natural human family. And they have now God as their father. By nature, this family must include both sexes and all ages, and they all must learn to function together. We call this by different names taken from the Bible. I identify three of those in our statement of faith, the household or family of faith. That's out of Galatians 6.10. It's called the body of Christ in numerous places. Ephesians 1.22 and 23. And it's called the church in numerous places. But there's other names that Scripture identifies for the church, and this will identify for us the special and intimate relationship that Jesus sees with His body. And this is what's important for us. How does the Lord consider the church? Not how does man consider it. The church will always be low in man's priority and eyes. But what does God say? Well, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, the church is called the Bride of Christ as well as in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. In Ephesians 5, Paul's exposition of how is a man and a woman in a marriage supposed to treat each other, he actually takes the relationship from the relationship with Christ and His church, and he calls the church His wife, His bride. Okay, And he says, the way that Christ loves and cherishes and nourishes His church, His bride, husbands, you're to do the same thing for your wife. So there's a direct correlation to that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, the church is called the firstborn of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we're called the building of Christ. In Ephesians 2.20, we're called His spiritual house, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. We read earlier in the morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're identified as a royal priesthood where we offer the sacrifices of praise to God, according to Hebrews 13. And then one of my favorite images put forward in Scripture of the church were called His flock. as very dear to me, being a shepherd. I love the idea and imagery of shepherding. And we are called His flock. Psalm 23, John 10, and others. So the body of Christ is identified by many uh, metaphors in Scripture, and they all communicate something very intimate and a truth that we need to take note of. Now, we're not going to focus on each one of those names this morning and, and pull out what those indicate to us. I'm trying to present the big picture to you of how does God see the church in the world? And all of those are very, very intimate titles that He gives us. That tells us something. The church is important to Him. The church is near to Him. And He loves His bride. What about the nature of the church? And this is something you probably know. But in case you don't, there's a twofold nature to the church. The first part is the invisible church, the body of Christ. We call it the church universal. Again, I want to quote from our statement of faith. So you can get a copy of that and you can see this right here. What we say at Waypoint is we believe that the church in its invisible form is universal. The true body and church of Christ. Now I emphasize this, all believers who have been born again from the day of Pentecost until Christ's return are members of that universal body, regardless of organizational or denominational affiliation. So being a member of the universal body of Christ, the requirements biblically are repentance and faith. And that's it. It's on those conditions that someone is born again and becomes a member of Christ's body. And so formally, when we get to that point of what's going to be required for anyone who wants to join Waypoint, repentance and faith, the fruit of it. Okay, The book of Hebrews talks about it. We can't hold you to more than what the Scripture holds you to. Um, we're not going to ask about your denominational affiliations. Now, we will ask you, 
to make sure that in conviction you stand with us doctrinally, but even the way we've set up our statement of faith, even if you don't line up with us doctrinally in every sense, you can still be a member. You might not be able to be in a position of teaching, but you can be a good standing member. Let's look at this. Go to Matthew chapter 12. I want to consider this aspect of the universal body of Christ, the mystical, invisible body of Christ that spans all ages from the day of Pentecost until the time Christ will return. We are one church, one body. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 46. Matthew writes, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There's no timetable put on it. He simply gives us the precept, whoever does the will of my Father, you are my family. And obviously we extend that into all ages. So we are part of the family of God if we are found to be in His will. There's another passage in the Gospels where where the disciples said, Behold, Lord, we've left our families to follow you. And He says, You know what? You might have left your one family, but you've entered into a situation now where you've gained it a hundredfold. And what he meant was, now, being a part of the universal family of God, you, disciples, are going to start out in Jerusalem and you're going to head out to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And everywhere you go, you'll have family, households, brothers, sisters, as part of your family. I remember hearing a missionary account of a missionary. I can't remember the country he went to, but there was very little Christian representation. And he didn't know the language of the people yet. So what he did to try and find other believers is he began walking the streets of the city. And he would hum the tune Amazing Grace. He would just hum that tune. And passing Christians would hear him humming the tune and begin humming it back. Identifying, I know what you're doing. I love that picture. You can go anywhere in the world and you can find brothers and sisters in Christ and you can have immediate fellowship with them. You can have immediate kindredness with them. In one sense, I kind of value military because they get to experience this a lot. They'll be here for three years and they'll plant themselves in a church and they'll develop these great relationships with us and then they're going to go get shipped off somewhere else and they get to do it again. Other scriptures that support this idea of the church being universal. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said to Peter, On this rock, that is the confession Jesus Christ, I will build my church that spans all time. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the, lad, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Paul said in Romans 16, 16, he ended his letter this way, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greeting. And then one of the best passages to really see both the universal and local aspect of the church is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Now note this with me. Paul says this in opening 1 Corinthians, to the church of God, that's universal, in Corinth, that's local, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Again, highlighting the universal aspect of our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church universal, biblically, is the spiritual body of Christ. And wherever the Spirit of God dwells in a believing people, there His body is. Jesus Himself said, where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am with you. And I'll remind you what the very word church in Greek means. It's ecclesia, and it literally means an assembly of people. So the church, in its universal mystical sense, is not an institution, it's not a building, it's not a locale, it's a people group who are identified by their Lord, surrounded and united by their common faith in Him. In our statement of faith, we also included some of the historic creeds of Christendom to support some of our biblical positions. This is out of the Nicene Creed. 
The Apostles' Creed says very, something very similar. The Nicene Creed, written in 320 AD, I think, says something. I can't remember the time frame. It says this, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, it's not Roman Catholic. Catholic means universal. Okay, And that's how they're using it. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So we, we learn some things from that creed that's important for us in understanding what the church is in its universal sense. One, it's the spiritual body of Christ. It's Catholic. It's universal. It's not bound by walls. It's not bound by geographical location. It is the universal church, the body of Christ. Two, it's apostolic. And what the creed means by apostolic is it has as its foundation the testimony and writings of the apostles. That's taken out of Ephesians 2.20. If you need biblical support, here's what Ephesians 2.20 says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens speaking to the Gentiles who were once alienated from Israel. God's made one body out of them. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's what it means to be an apostolic church. You have as your supreme authority this, the, the testimony and writings of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief. So let me give you quickly a summary of some of the characteristics of the universal church. One, it's universal, we just saw. Two, it's apostolic, we just saw. I'm not going to explain that. According to Ephesians 1 verse 4, it's elect, it's chosen. Israel in the Old Testament as a nation is a picture of that as well. They were a chosen people nationally. So God, uh, Christ Jesus himself is called God's elect son. Those who are in Christ from eternity past are elect in Him, Ephesians 1. The universal church is invisible, being the body of Christ. It's a dwelling place of the Spirit. It's not a visible thing, as I said. It's not identified by its denominational shingle, its walls, its mortar. It's indivisible, meaning it's not divided. Now, if you, this is one of, maybe that's hard for us to understand because we think of, of the local church and how often the local church is divided with itself. But the universal church is not. If you are in Christ, you are in Him. And He is not divided in Himself. Paul says in Ephesians 2.16 and then 4, 2-4, he says, There is one body, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, one confession. Our common faith binds us together. We may disagree on doctrinal things locally, but in Christ we are one. And when we get to heaven, we will enjoy that oneness. One of my favorite things, I want you to read this with me. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. The universal church is doxological. And what I mean by that, the church is ordained for the glory and praise of God. We just got done worshiping and lifting up the Lord's name. But I want you to see this. In Ephesians 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. We just quoted verse 4 being chosen. Verse 4 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ. Go down to verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of His glory. What's the end of the church? Praise His glory and the riches of His grace toward us. It's doxological. I got to meet with Ronnie this week just talking about worship. And that's what, what it comes to, right? It's to the praise of His glory. In worship, we are edified. In worship, we are built up. In worship, we are ministered to. But ultimately, it's to lift up the name of Christ who's chosen us in Him and given us an inheritance. What a beautiful 
beautiful truth. Go over to chapter 3 in Ephesians, verse 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory, what? In the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. The church is to be a beacon of God's glory where His name and His praise resounds forth. It's not to be focused on man, though man is an indispensable part of it. We are His body, but it is to the praise of His glory. So the universal church is doxological. That's an exciting thought. If you just stop and think about what's happening today on Sunday, how the universal church, we may have theological differences with some, all over Clovis, all over the country, all over the world. But if they are part of the universal body of Christ, we are all this day exalting Him. That's exciting. And in heaven, we get the perfect picture of that. We'll be standing shoulder to shoulder doing the same thing. Furthermore, some, some of the characteristics of the universal church, it's, church, it's ethnically and gender neutral. Paul says that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian. All are one. He's not saying, he's not overlooking gender, so to speak. What he's saying is in Christ, ethnicity, gender, does not exalt one over the other. We're all on level playing fields in Christ. We all have equal value, equal worth to Him. The universal church is regenerate. They are born again. And this is an important distinction to make because in the local, visible church, not everyone who attends is regenerate. If you are part of the body of Christ, you are absolutely born again. Otherwise, you're not part of His body. This is important, as I said, because in the local church, Scripture says there's wheat together with tares in Matthew 13. There's wolves Acts chapter 20. There's false brethren, Galatians 2.4. And there's unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14.23. There's a mixture in the visible church, not so in the universal church. All who are part of the body of Christ are born again, and they will have an inheritance with the saints. But lastly, I'll say this, as, as part of the characteristics of the universal church, it's original. And what I mean by this, it's, it's created. Its birthday was the day of Pentecost. And I say that because there's in conservative and reformed churches, which I would tend to lean toward, the teaching of, of um, the church is really a spiritual Israel. It's replaced national Israel in the covenant promises. I don't believe that theologically. God is not done with the nation of Israel, and Revelation makes it clear He will fulfill His promises to them. And the church is not in Revelation. We are an original creation I love Matthew Henry's commentary. He's one of the greatest New Testament commentators, old saints ever. But when you read his commentary, he was a replacement theologian. He read the church back into the Old Testament so that when he read Old Testament passages of Israel, he says it's the church. It's not the church. It's Israel. The church is the New Testament era. It was created on Pentecost. It will be taken out. The Lord's coming and God will finish His plan for national Israel. I want to quote some of the early church fathers on this. This is so good. Ignatius said this, Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic universal church. That was in 110. Irenaeus, where the church is, there is the Spirit of God, and where the Spirit of God is, there is the church. Tertullian said it this way, The churches, although they are so many and so great, comprise but one primitive church founded by the apostles, from which they all spring. And then Clement of Alexandria, just as God's will is creation and is called the world, so His intention is the salvation of men, and it's called the church. So that leads us into our second point, looking at the church. It's universal nature, but also it's local, visible manifestation. Let's get some biblical support for this, because the church is universal. It's not um, seen, it's invisible. But there's also the visible manifestation. That's what we are right now. And it's happening all over Clovis. It's happening all over the world. There's visible local congregants. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, we read. Paul identified both to the church of God, universal, in Corinth. And he often opens epistles. For instance, 1 Thessalonians. To the believers at Thessalonica. To the believers at Ephesus. So on and so forth. 
Go to Acts chapter 11 with me. We see this dichotomy beginning to take shape the moment the church began expanding outside of Jerusalem because when the church was birthed in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, it was the church at Jerusalem. But as the gospel spread out, it began taking on the church at so-and-so, the church at so-and-so, the church at so-and-so. We see it at Antioch. Okay, In Acts chapter 11, the apostles hear that revival's broken out, so they send good old Barnabas down there to check it out. In verse 21 of Acts 11, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number, this is the Antioch, believed and turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So you see that, added to the Lord. There's the universal church. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now what's it say? For a whole year they met with, what? The church at Antioch. There's the local manifestation, and they taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. I said 1 Thessalonians 1.1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches, each one of them opens up identifying the local congregant to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, to the angel of the church at Pergamum, the angel of the church at Thyatira, so on and so forth. They're identified as local congregants. In Romans 16.5, Paul even references, he breaks it down not only geographically from city to city, he identifies it from house to house. He identifies the church in Prisca and Aquila's house in Romans 16.5. And then in his letter to Philemon, he says this, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and the church in your house. So there's the local manifestations. I don't think this is difficult truth, probably very commonly recognized by you who are in the Word. So the church is not only recognized geographically by city, but even house to house. Now it's important to make a distinction here, okay? Doctrinally, evangelicals, which we are, reject the Roman Catholic teaching that teaches just as there's one universal, invisible church, so there's only one local church, visible church, of whom they say are it. And they say that the Pope is the vicar, the representative of Peter's successor in the, in the apostolic chain. And it's the Pope who sits on the chair, ex-cathedra, and makes proclamations infallibly. We reject that. We see the universal church is everywhere, are, is, is not bound. There's, there's one body, right? The local churches, there are many, and they're autonomous. So what do we see? Biblically, we see Christ as the head of both the invisible, universal, as well as the visible local church. In the local church, what happens is that they are first to then establish under shepherds which is what we did biblically, right? Paul said to Titus in 1.5, Hey, Titus, I sent you to Crete for this purpose, to establish elders in every city. And so the, the shepherds, the elders, literally are, are under-shepherds of their one head, Jesus Christ. But they are to exercise authority, teaching, discipline, whatever it is, in those local congregations. Um, they, they have local autonomy, especially in regard to ministry, church discipline, establishing local leaders, so on and so forth. Um, this is why, really, I love being a non-denominational church. Um, because, because the church is to be locally autonomous. If we see something biblically and are convicted biblically and doctrinally that this should be so, and yet it might go against our denomination, now all of a sudden you're at odds. Um, and, and there's the, the tendency to, to want to compromise maybe a conviction biblically. What's the purposes of the local church? One, in relation to God, is to glorify Him. That's what we're here for. We are to build one another up, but even in building one another up, what are we doing? We're forming Christ in each other. That's what we just finished looking at in discipleship. Why? So the glory and, and image of Christ is made manifest here. So in relation to God, the local church is to glorify the Lord. It's what we read in Ephesians 3.21. In relation to the, the universal church of which we're all a part, in which our brothers and sisters all over the world are worshiping today, what's our purpose? Well, 
We are to be here in Clovis, the visible and local expression of our universal faith that we share. We are to manifest not only the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said, but we are to declare His truth. What about our relationship to other uh, believers? Our, our internal mission, as we just got done doing our whole series on, is discipleship. Our internal mission, our relation to one another is, look, I am gifted spiritually in some way, you are gifted in another, and we are to build one another up. It's discipleship. Fourth, the purpose of the local church is to be the propagators of the gospel. Evangelism. We are where we're at here in Clovis, New Mexico, to proclaim the good news. Again, I want to support some with some quotes about the local church. John Calvin, I've got two from him. They're so good. He says, Wherever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults, which the local church will. (laughs) We'll have many problems. He goes on to say also in a different quote, Of course we believe in the invisible church, evident to God's eye alone. In other words, like Paul said in, in 2 Timothy 2, God knows those who are His. We don't always know that. But God knows those who are His. So evident to God's eye alone. But we are told, Calvin goes on, to accept the visible church and to remain in communion with it. I love C.H. Spurgeon with his wit. As only he can say, he says this, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join. (laughs) That's That's the local church. The local church is told to, to, to perform and, and, uh, and remember the ordinances, the two ordinances given. Baptism and communion, which is the picture of the gospel. In baptism, what are we proclaiming? The Lord's death, right? Um, or uh, the Lord's resurrection. Communion, we're proclaiming His death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So those two ordinances are given to the local church to remember and to practice. As I already said, the local church is to establish its own leadership, to lead, to guide, to shepherd. But it's important, as I touched on just a minute ago, this is where a lot of people, when we deal with the issue of church membership, start fudging. They look at the problems of a local church, which might be many, and they'll refuse to identify and throw in. And that's the problem that we'll really address. What, the, what that really manifests, we were ta- I was talking with someone a couple of weeks ago about this, and they were speaking of, of an acquaintance of theirs who, who identifies himself as a Christian, but yet refuses to go to a church because we're hypocrites and we're so full of all this stuff. And, and I just said, that person doesn't know the Lord. They're not a believer. If they can truly believe that and repudiate the bride of Christ, what they don't see is the sinfulness of their own heart. As Spurgeon said, the minute they would join a church, they would defile it as well. When they can look at a local church with as many problems as it may have and say, ooh, I'm better than that. I ain't going to be a part of it. Man, what a backwards understanding of the local church. So local churches, yes, we can have corruption. We can um, have moral failings. Um, The universal church, it's not so. But the local church is important. And that's really from here on out, next, next time we preach on this, we're going to focus. I do want to end this way, though. I want to put before the local church waypoint. There's three very prominent prerogatives given to us as a local church. And they're weighty. They're exciting. The first is this. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. First Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen. In verse fourteen, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's the local manifestation, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or support of the truth. The first prerogative of a local church in any community is this. It is a pillar in support of the truth of God. That's a weighty prerogative. We are to be 
we are to be exemplars in our character and proclaimers of this truth that has been entrusted to us. Paul said that this treasure, speaking of the gospel, has been entrusted to jars of clay. Why? So that the surpassing power of this ministry might not be seen of us, but of God, right? We are weak vessels, are we not, church? We are fallible, often fraught with many failures, and yet God in His pleasure and His grace has said, I'm going to entrust the greatest treasure ever to you, weak vessels. Why? So that my grace might be magnified and the power of it might be seen to those looking on. What a treasure God has given us in the Bible. He's given it to all generations. It's been faithfully passed on from generation to generation and handed to us in our generation. And what are we to do with it? We are then to entrust it to faithful men, Paul said to Timothy, who are able to entrust it to other faithful men who are then entrusted to other faithful men who entrust it, and so on. We're in the living chain ministry of supporting and, and being a pillar of this truth. It's a divine prerogative given to the church. God didn't entrust His Word to the governing authorities. He didn't entrust it there. He gave it to the church. It's the task of the church to both promote and protect the gospel of Christ. In fact, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, Timothy. Jude says the same thing in verse, in verse 3. He says, I was going to write and encourage you in the faith, but I found it necessary to tell you, contend for it. Fight for the faith that's been entrusted to the saints once for all. What a prerogative. What a weighty prerogative. So the first prerogative of the local church, we are to be a pillar in support of this in our community. This is our priority. This is what is we are identified by. It's what I identified Israel, by the way, in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Paul said to Israel was given the promises, the covenants, the law. Israel's very identity was that to no one else did God speak His law to. He entrusted it to them. Of course, they botched it. The second prerogative given to the local church is found in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. This verse is... is, uh, so well-known and almost cliché-ish that we really miss the prerogative aspect of it. But it's very important when we consider what is the purpose and prerogatives of the church locally. Jesus says we are to be salt and light to the community that we're embedded in. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. So both terms, right? You're the salt of what? The earth. You are the light of the world. God has put us intentionally, physically, in this place, Clovis, on earth, in the world, to be salt, to be light. And a city that's on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Takes us right back to the doxological element of the church. What's the church supposed to do? Praise and glorify the Father. Even our good works that are arrayed before a community of onlooking people is to point back to the glory of God. All of our righteous deeds put on display by the power and grace of God is not to exalt man, it's to exalt Him. That's the prerogative of the local church. This, this community, Clovis, New Mexico, needs both salt and light. It needs the corrective and it needs the truth. And so God has arrayed His local church and He intentionally puts you on a hill to be looked at. What that tells me, too, about the nature of the local church is if you have the tendency to not want to be visible or public, this might be hard for you. (laughs) We all, at times, will struggle 
with the monk mentality, wanting to just withdraw, right? And, and even couch it in spiritual terms. I'm going to go worship the Lord alone. And God says, no, why don't you go worship me publicly on a hill for everyone to see? That's the prerogative of the church. You're the light of the world, and you are the salt. Get out there. Be who you are to be. Why? Because that is how I will be glorified in the world. Not apart from the church, through the church. Ephesians 3.21 The third prerogative of the local church is that the church is an organism through which God is making known, and this is profound. The church is an organism through which God is making known to both angels and demons His manifold wisdom and salvation. Go to Ephesians with me again. This is awesome. And it's probably something you don't think about. Um, So in Ephesians, I didn't write the, the verse down. Hold on, I'll find it. There it is. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is talking about this, this ministry that's been given to him as an apostle. Join me in verse 8, Ephesians 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now verse 10. So that through what? The church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. First Peter tells us that angels longed to look into what God is doing with men. Because biblically, angels fell, they sinned. We call them demons. But salvation was not offered to them. Men sinned. And God did offer him salvation. Angels are watching us. We're told biblically that angels are always in the presence of God, beholding His face. They see His glory. They stand in His presence. And yet they are to learn something from the church, Paul says. And what they are to learn is the wisdom, power of God in saving people. They gaze at us with wonder. Because they look at man and they see what we've already talked about in discipleship. They see the image of their God and our God in men and how we've made a wreck of it. And they see how God is now making all things new. Like we just sang. Right? That's not happening for angels. But it is happening in the company of men. The manifold wisdom of God, rulers and authorities, are gazing at in wonder as they look at the church. Does that not blow your mind? Is that not an amazing truth to just stop and behold? There's an old song. When I first became a Christian, I would walk over to my sister's apartment on college campuses by newsboys called Entertaining Angels. You know that song? Some of you are probably too young to remember it. I was coming out of a background of Pantera and Megadeth and man entertaining angels that was rocking it you know what i mean but the that truth that's what they the song's talking about entertaining angels through the light of my tv screen 24 7 you wait for me is the, the line of the chorus and just that truth i was so foreign to any biblical truth any biblical knowledge i had no biblical perspective on it it blew my mind to think about this truth that my life is being watched it's being gazed at but it is And and the salvation of God in in people is something that amazes the angelic beings. J.C. Ryle, which we have one of his books for sale over here, by the way. I would highly encourage reading him. He said this, he says, They, the angels, see see in us indeed all of our weakness and all of our sin. But they see a nature, though fallen in itself, was yet made in the image of God. And they see this God at work upon the wreck to produce results not only wonderful in themselves, but doubly wonderful because of the conditions. They have to learn something which makes them watch us with wonder and with awe. A beautiful truth, a prerogative of the church. Not only are we light and salt to the people on earth, we're instructing angels in the salvation of God 
as he works in the church to save us and to sanctify us. So in conclusion, I've tried to put before us the picture of what the church is this morning. Why? So that we are careful not to degrade it. The church is the new creation of God beginning on Pentecost through which He has chosen to entrust His gospel so that His eternal gospel would disseminate from us to the world. The church is very highly valued by the Lord, is fraught with failures as we might be. He never degrades it. And when you see people degrading the church of God and refusing to identify with it, be very careful of them, especially so-called pastors or professing Christians. They have no idea about the plan and purpose of God in it. We are weak, and we'll readily confess that. But God's love is set on us. And I will never degrade His bride. And I don't want us to either. I want us to see the church as God sees it. In that, I want to invite Ronnie back up and we're going to close the service. I'll I'll close this in prayer. Father God, I just, uh, I love this study, Lord. One, I think because you've called me to be a shepherd. And you've, you've put in my heart a shepherd's heart, Father, which is what your heart is. You are the good shepherd. You lay your life down for the sheep. You love your bride. You nourish your bride. You care. You rebuke. You correct. You endure with the church. And though in our visible local manifestations, Lord, sometimes we don't interpret the Scriptures right, often we fail morally. Yet in the universal body of Christ, we are yours. We are secure. And one day we will be perfected in your image and we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters who share that common hope. So Father, I pray for those here this morning that you'd encourage them and cause them to think hard about about what church membership means because it's something very weighty. It's something very serious. It's something very needed. We need people who are going to stop dating the church and commit to it as you've committed yourself as a husband does a bride. You don't stand afar off from us. You bind yourself intimately to us. And and so Paul could say of the church, we are members of one another. I so bind myself to you in church membership that I would lay my life down for you, my brother and sister. Give us that kind of vision. Give us that kind of passion for your church locally that we might see how we could be used to build it up, to nourish it, to strengthen it, to edify it as you desire. Father, we pray all this in your good and gracious name. Amen.